many hospitals in the country are struggling with screening. So the lack of widespread screening means that coronavirus may be present in countless hospital wards without anyone realizing it. Accordingly, many emergency room workers are now behaving as if they are already infected and separating from their families. One ER doctor said that he has been sleeping in the guest bedroom for weeks. Other doctors have sent their families off to stay at second homes. The majority of workers who keep America's hospital running don't have the salary to afford extra bedrooms, much less extra properties. For technicians, respiratory therapists, social workers, chaplains, first responders, cleaning staff, and many others, doing their job is an act of moral complexity. Without enough PPE, they are putting their own health at risk every time they report for duty, as well as that of their families. And this isn't even to mention the obligation workers at all levels of the hospital hierarchy feel for their patients. With the United States now leading the world on COVID diagnosis, the demands on the medical systems are increasing with each passing day. This show is brought to you by hospicechaplaincy.com, promoting excellency in professional hospice chaplaincy. You can find the Hospice Chaplaincy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play Music. For more information, you can visit hospicechaplaincy.com. We are your hosts, Joe Newton. And I'm Saul Bema. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Um, many of you know we are going through really difficult times with the COVID-19 uh, loss of deaths in the United States. I think um, over 18,000 by now and lots of people affected. And not only that, but this has also affected our economy. Uh, lots of people are out of work. So it's really uh, challenging times. But today, uh, we welcome to the studio, Alison. Uh, thank you for joining us on the show. Hi, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, could you uh, introduce yourself uh, to the audience? Yes, um, so my name is Alison. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I currently work in the emergency department. Um, I've been a social worker for just under 10 years, um, and I've worked in the healthcare field um, for a little over seven years. And a lot of the work that I deal with are um, like uh, psychosocial needs of patients. So outside of their medical care, mm. any other issues going on with their life, it could be something as um, something like they can't afford their medication to they're trying to leave a, an abusive relationship. I kind of run the gamut of everything. Wow, that's uh, an amazing experience. What led you to social work? Um, so it's actually a really interesting story. My aunt uh, was a social worker. And so I grew up um, visiting my aunt at work and just being around the environment. And I absolutely adore my aunt. Um, so I wanted to follow in her footsteps. And it was pretty much the only thing I've wanted to do. I never had a backup plan. So I'm very lucky that it worked out. And now um, you're working in the emergency room. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So how is that like, you know, in this era of COVID-19? It's um, it can be challenging. Um, it there is definitely a general feeling of anxiety right now amongst the staff. Um, 
you know, I can definitely say that we have started to see um, an increase in patients coming in with um, respiratory concerns, um, flu-like symptoms. So we're starting to see um, a lot more patients with complex medical needs coming in, um, which is can be very difficult um, when if you have four or five patients and each patient is very complex and um, demands and requires a lot of attention, it can be very taxing on the staff. Mm. Um, but I think with that being said, um, it's, the time has also brought out this wonderful morale and feeling of teamwork and feeling of togetherness and this bond that all of us have in the emergency department, you know, with everything going on with COVID, I can definitely say it's brought us together um, like a little family. Mm. So how has uh, your practice as a social worker changed um, because of this? I, so in my work, I like to be very hands-on. Um, when I go and talk to patients, I like to get bedside with them. I like to sit down next to them. Um, so I really like to engage with my patients a lot and really be in the moment with them. Mm. Um, because of everything going on with COVID, you know, we have um, practices in place to make sure that staff and patients are safe. Um, so my practice has changed by I can't really engage with a lot of patients in the way that I can. Mm. Like before, I used to be able to go into the rooms and talk to the patients and sit down with them. I had a patient this week that I had to stand outside their room and talk to them over a phone, um, which is a little impersonal for me as a social worker. I like to get in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so it's a little disconnecting um, in that sense, having to wear a lot of this protective equipment. Um, I see a lot of people starting to put pictures of themselves on the front of their uniform so the people can see what, you know, what our, our providers look like behind all of their protective equipment and goggles and masks. Mm. Um, so it's, it's definitely taken a, a step back um, in terms of we can't really get as involved on a personal level that we could have before. Mm. Uh, do the families come in then? Are you also working with the families? That's that, yes, that's definitely something that has changed within my practice as well. Um, whereas before, you know, at, we could have visitors come in, you know, I would, with patient's permission, talk to families in the waiting room, talk to families' bedside. You know, I, I'd like to take a very um, integrated approach and try to rely on natural supports and patients' own environments. Mm -hmm. um, and right now, again, because of a lot of the social distancing policies that are in place right now, we actually have, as a lot of hospitals um, in the Chicagoland area, have implemented a no visitor policy. Oh. So what's happening is when people come to the emergency department, say if I were to come to the emergency department with my sister, um, I would get checked in at the front and then uh, they would ask my sister to leave. Mm -hmm. So um, they would constantly be in contact with my sister over the phone. Um, yeah. But again, it's that, that separation of an individual's support. Yeah. So a lot of individuals are finding themselves navigating the healthcare system alone by themselves without their support's bedside. Um, so that's, that's definitely changed how 
we look at patient care and how we communicate patient care and really trying to make the extra effort to make those phone calls to get family involved as much as possible. I know that my colleagues um, within the ICUs have also had a very unique challenge of individuals excuse me, whether they are uh, nearing an end-of-life situation um, and how can we get their loved ones bedside? How can we get them um, to be able to have that last moment with their loved one? So coming up with a lot of creative solutions. I know that we implement a lot of technology um, to assist with that, whether it's an iPad, being able to do a video chat um, or you know, being able to Skype with a loved one. Um, I know that, for example, we had um, a, a gentleman who was in our ICU. Um, his wife was, I believe, giving birth over in our women's hospital. And so the social worker in the ICU was able to go over, take pictures, take video of the baby, um, and then brought it back over to the ICU where the husband was and just posted up all the pictures in his room, you know, was able to see his new baby, able to see his wife through a video. Um, I do believe they're able to do like a, a Skype chat from, you know, the ICU to labor, labor and delivery. Um, so we're really coming up with these creative solutions to try to keep these family systems together, to try to keep these supports involved so individuals and patients within the hospital can still feel like their loved ones are still there. So they don't feel like they're navigating this very, very uncertain time on their own. Wow, that is that is beautiful. That is really good creativity uh, from the social worker. We yes, we we definitely have <laughs> have tried to come up with some pretty creative solutions during this very, very challenging time. And that's something that I think that all of us within the healthcare system are priding ourselves on that we we understand the challenges that these families are facing mm-hmm. um, on, a, on a personal level. You know, I recently lost an aunt um, and she had been sick for a while. And I, I get it because I, I haven't been able to really and fully grieve her passing because I wasn't there. I didn't get the kind of closure that people would typically get. So on a certain level, I really empathize with these individuals and with these families because I, I get it. I understand because in a way that I, I lived it myself during COVID. Mm. Um, so I really try to make that extra effort. I know how important it is for individuals to know that their loved ones are here with them. Yeah. I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. Yeah. This is, um, this really has challenged, um, uh, the grieving process, the barriers, and loss of ceremonies, and this. Yes, um, it it, mm-hmm. it very much has. It's it's um, it's teaching us new ways to grieve. Um, it's teaching us new ways to connect with individuals. You know, instead of for me, anyways, the the typical grieving process has changed for me a little bit, to where I I don't feel as much sadness as I do. So much time reflecting on all the positive memories that I have. Mm. Um, so I, I'm because that's that's all I, I can really access right now. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's has made grief a little bit more complex. Um, and with that being said, kind of like an offshoot of that, there's definitely been some you know increases with mental health concerns 
anxiety, depression. I mean, everybody's isolated. We're completely isolated from our everyday lives, our regular schedule, things that are normal, quote, normal for me. So I think that all of us are feeling this at some level, whether it's an increase in anxiety, you know, worry how, you know, what's next week going to be like, especially in the hospitals. You know, we keep hearing within the next two weeks, we're supposed to be hitting our peak. So all of us are kind of holding our breath, waiting for the shoe to drop. Mm. You know, there's an increase in depression for people that don't feel like they're connected to their loved ones or to their supports. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of this. And I definitely think that, you know, once the dust is settled and once we finally start to be able to integrate back to a regular or, or a normal sort of lifestyle, I definitely think that we need to pay attention to the mental health and the well, emotional well-being of the individuals on the front lines, the individuals that have experienced grief and loss and have experienced complex trauma, vicarious trauma during this time. Because it's not once the pandemic is over, it's not over. We're going to be feeling the effects in one way or another for a very, very long time. Uh, you said you wanted to talk on the success side, and I like I like that because there's a lot of negativity even in the news right now. I was mm-hmm. listening to a show, and uh, this doctor also had the same mentality. He said, "I just want to share success stories." Today, we discharged uh, our one thousandth coronavirus patient. Successful story, and they said that every time they make a discharge like that, they play the music. Don't stop believing. As the person oh, walks, <laughs> yeah, I find that you know that's really encouraging, because you you hear stories people going to the hospital and boom they're dead. So it's it's scary. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We have um, our success stories. You know, we we kind of age that in a few different ways. You know, um, something as like. We had my, we didn't have as many intubations in a shift is would be a success for us. You know, we were able to um, have some nurses or some staff members that were in quarantine or in isolation have come back. And so, you know, celebrating their return where it's starting to feel like a little, again, a little sense of normalcy again. Mm-hmm. I know that, um, um, on our inpatient floors, we are definitely discharging a lot of in- individuals who have been successfully uh, weaned off of a ventilator, mm-hmm. which is a huge success because I, I was reading an article and I believe it said something along the lines of, um, I, I think it, I you know what, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was some very, very high percentage, maybe like I'm not sure, maybe like 30 or 40% of individuals placed on a ventilator have a difficult time weaning off of a ventilator. Mm. Um, And so hearing that a lot of our patients coming out of the ICUs that are being successfully weaned off of a ventilator, that is a huge success story. That just means that these individuals are on a path to going home. And home is the absolute best outcome right now for a lot of individuals. Yeah. We've had um, some really great like morale going on in the emergency department. I just want to say I'm so very, very humbled and appreciative of everybody that has, you know, come and donated food or, you know, somebody came in and dropped off flowers for all of the staff members. I'm not going to lie. I got a little teary when I got my my flowers. Um, Just somebody, you know appreciating and acknowledging and seeing the healthcare workers and seeing what we're going through. Even if it is a small gesture of something like 
a flower or a meal. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how much that means to the staff and how much we, we get energized by that. Um, because it, it, it can feel, you know, outside of just the general isolation of not being able to contact your supports or access them. It's the isolation of like, we're on the front lines. Not a lot of people get it, you know, get what we're doing or get what we experience. So when we get something like that, it's, it's, it's very, very heartwarming and is so, so greatly appreciated. Mm. Um, you know, I know staff members are, you know, being able to to Skype with their families. I know that a lot of our staff members still are able to um, go home, that we don't have a lot of individuals, to the best of my knowledge, we don't have a lot of individuals that are, are needing or having to self-quarantine or self-isolate away from their families right now, um, which is really, 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 really great. And it's just a testament to, you know, the type of uh, supports and the type of equipment that we're being provided that we feel safe and comfortable going back to our families at the end of the day. Wow, that's good. So you, you at your hospital, you have enough equipment because we hear a lot of lack of equipment almost everywhere. So my experience with the with the equipment um, is a little bit different than the doctors and the nurses. Okay. So our doctors and nurses do have the N95 masks. They have their face shields. They have goggles. They have the right, um, you know, uh, gowns that they wear. Um, so they they are definitely being um, protected. And those individuals do have access to that equipment. The equipment that I wear is a little bit different because, like I said, I don't go into the patient rooms that are, are COVID positive or even people coming in as a rule out or suspected COVID. So I'm not going into those rooms. So I don't necessarily need that type of equipment, but I'm every morning what they're doing is providing each staff member um, with a surgical mask. And then um, if somebody requires an N95 mask, I can only speak to the emergency department, but if somebody needs an N95 mask, I know that our nurses and doctors and supportive staff do have access to that. Mm -hmm. oh, that's good. And then um, I heard that there are some hospitals experiencing um, challenges with advanced directives. What is your experience with that? It's it's. A conversation I'm having a lot more than I typically do. Um, I think we're definitely making a point to really learn um, what an individual's wishes are if they're not on file um, or if somebody hasn't filled out uh, power of attorney information. And if they're able to, we are engaging those conversations right now because we would hate for, in you know, worst case scenario, somebody needs to have some intensive life-saving measures, but if that's not their wishes, you know, we don't want to go against anybody's wishes. So um, I know, for example, there was um, a patient that was a complex intubation, um, and one of one of our attendings was helping out another attending with this patient by calling their family, talking about advanced directives, talking about this individual's wishes, and communicating that in real time through the window with the medical team. So we knew right then and there what this person wanted because we want to make sure that we are upholding and respecting and valuing everybody's wishes. So we're definitely doing a lot more advanced directives, um, doing a lot more advanced directives in the emergency department. I do know that um, once people transition to the floor that they're also looking at um, advanced directives to make sure that we have something on file. If we don't have something on file, you know, emergency contacts, um, we're doing, we're 
everything that we can to make sure that we're in constant communication with the family, with the decision maker, um, if it's not the, the patient, in, you know, in communicating updates to the best of our ability right now. Um, I know that our spiritual care department has greatly been, oh my gosh, such a help and such a benefit um, to myself and to the to the hospital, to the social work staff. Um, they also come up and they, they're the ones that can assist also with completing advanced directives. So I can say from my experience, um, when it gets very, very busy in the emergency department, my support that I lean on is our spiritual care department. And the, the men and women in that department are by far the most amazing human beings I think I've ever met. Um, and they're, they're really taking the time to stay bedside with the family mm. and, you know, just providing, whether it's you know, an extra five minutes of just listening, you know, just somebody just needs someone to listen or processing or saying a silent prayer, you know, or helping somebody contact their family or helping somebody fill out the advanced directives. Our spiritual care department is very, very involved right now. It is, um, they're there 24 hours a day. They're accessible to staff, to patients, to pretty much anybody that's requesting um, spiritual support, guidance, or just you know, needing assistance with advanced directives. Mm. So we partner a lot with that department. Um, so I, I can't say enough positive things about our spiritual <laughs> care department. They are just amazing, amazing human beings. Wow. And uh, you said earlier that the morale within this, uh, the staff is high. Um, <laughs> Contrary to other places, sometimes we hear the, the morale is low because people are scared. What do you think is the difference? Well, you know, I, can, I, I definitely think that, you know, we have our moments, right? If mm. we have a very rough shift, um, our nurses are working 12, sometimes 16-hour shifts. Mm. And if you have a very rough shift, you know, that definitely weighs on us. But I think that walking through the emergency department, just this feeling of, hey, guys, you know, we're in it together. Everyone is checking in on everybody. You know, I had a nurse come up to me um, and invite me for a virtual Easter dinner. Um, since I'm, I'm, I, don't, I can't have Easter with my family, um, I haven't been able to see my family since February because of, you know, working in the emergency department. I don't want to expose them to anything. Um, so a nurse like invited me to to zoom in and have an Easter dinner. And that was something that was really touching for me. I was like, Oh my gosh, like I would love to have Easter dinner with you. So we're, we're checking in on each other. We're finding ways to keep each other motivated, to keep each other going. Mm. And when we do have those rough shifts, when we do have a patient that passes in the emergency department, when we do have, something that just hits really, really close to home because we are, you know, human beings as well. And we feel yeah. everything that you guys feel, you know, mm. um, we're there for each other. We, we, we kind of intervene and we see it before it happens. Mm. Um, I make a very, uh, intention, attentional task each day to go around to the emergency department and ask the staff, are you okay? What's mm. going on? How can I help you? And even if it's just talking about something that's not work related, talking about, oh yeah, you know, my, my child did this or, oh yeah, you know, my family's doing this for me. And, you know, just having, being able to take that, that moment or that space and disconnect and re-engage with that personal part of somebody 
um, I think is really, really important because oftentimes we can be seen as nurses, we can be seen as doctors, we can be seen as respiratory therapists, we can be seen as pharmacists and social workers, but I'm also Allison. But it's also all these other humans going through this experience as well. Um, so our emergency department is actually quite large. We have mm. a two-story, a two-floor, I should say, emergency department. Um, so I try to go around every day and just engage with people on that personal level mm-hmm. to you know, be invested, to be interested in their lives, to make sure that everybody's doing okay. I make it a point to let everybody know my, my, my door is always open. You can always come and talk with me and anything that you need to process or vent. I, I make sure that people know that there is a safe place and somebody that is willing to hold space for them during this time. Mm. And I think just being able to be reminded about those resources and even somebody just saying, hey, you know what? If you need anything, I got you. I'm here for you. Um, I had a coworker do that for me, a coworker and a very, very good friend do that for me. And she's done that a hundred times. But for some reason, when she said it to me, I was like, like I felt it, you know, yeah. I was like, thank you so much for that. I really just needed to hear somebody say that to me. Mm. Um, so making the point to engage in, in people's lives, I think is very important right now. Uh, you're doing an amazing work. <laughs> We're, you know, it's definitely a team effort. You know, we all play a role. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that. I, 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 say that the doctors and the nurses, and especially we need to remember our pharmacists. We need to remember the respiratory therapists because mm. they're the ones that are in there that are working with these patients directly. They're the true heroes right now. They're the ones that are risking everything to save another human being. Um, so I, I really think that those individuals need to be highlighted and need to be praised and need yes. to be remembered. And and that's what I mean, that these, after everything is said and done, those individuals need to be supported and need to know that they're going to continually be supported, that they're not going to be forgotten after all this is said and done, um, mm-hmm. that we really need to make sure that there are safeguards in place for this population, for the first responders as well, too, yes, yes. our paramedics, our firefighters, our police, you know, police officers. They're also on the front lines. They're also the ones transporting these individuals, you know, doing possibly compressions in the back of an ambulance. You know, they're, they're in it just as much as we are. Same thing with our, our essential workers, you know, our grocery store clerks, our pharmacy staff, you know, everybody that we still come in contact with that are still working right now, all of these people need to be remembered once everything's said and done. And all these people need to be able to have access to quality services, whether that be financial services, counseling services, housing services, childcare services. You know, these individuals really need to be taken care of afterwards. I agree with you. And um that's that's really vital. Um what um what wisdom or advice do you have for our listeners in these crazy times? I I highly encourage everyone to find something that uplifts them during the day. Find something that brings them fulfillment, something that brings them joy. Engage with that as much as possible. You know, know also that it's okay to not be okay right now. Um, I don't think 
anybody is feeling 100% okay. And from a social work perspective, I need to stress that it's okay to not be okay. And if you're not feeling okay, know and identify the people that you feel comfortable talking to or reaching out to. I know that a lot of um, insurance companies right now have approved for telehealth um, so visits for counseling and therapy. And I know a lot of therapists are so willing and waiting for people to reach out for them because they want to help and they want to support. So even if you are feeling alone and you are feeling isolated, you're not alone. There's hundreds of people there that want to help you, that want to be there for you. Um, you know, I, I feel it sometimes too when I'm at home and I, I feel like I'm going stir crazy. I have to remember that you know, I, I do have my health, that I'm very, very fortunate to be in the position that I am, you know, that we're all in this together, that nobody is really going through this truly alone because we're all feeling the effects of it. And I think it's very important right now for us to rally around each other, to really have that community mentality to support and to love and to take care of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, That's really, truly in my, in my heart, what I feel that we need this community mentality to make sure that nobody, nobody gets forgotten about, nobody gets lost in the mix of everything that everybody knows that there's somebody out there for them that's willing and waiting to help. I, so from, from my end, my rough days um, have to do with a lot of, I work with a lot of our um, homeless individuals within the city of Chicago, mm-hmm. um, and their lives are even disrupted. Their regular routines are disrupted. You know, even something like they um, rely on a particular shelter to be open overnight for them to have a place to sleep. And because we're practicing social distancing guidelines, some of the shelters may not be operational right now. Some of the shelters are constantly full at max capacity, you know. Um, so my my difficult days are, are working with those individuals. And sometimes, you know, I don't have a solution to their problem. And as a social worker, we're problem solvers. It's very uncomfortable for us to not have a solution to a problem. Mm. But to see the faces of these individuals that any one of us could instantly be in their position of not having a bed to lay in at the end of the day. Um, those are those are my rough days. Those are the individuals that I end up taking home with me and that I, I think about and that I pray about and that I hope are, you know, are being able to do what they can right now. I know that a lot of the food pantries are still open or trying to, to help these individuals. I know that there are still some services they might be you know, running not at full capacity, but there are still services out there for people. Um, so my, my rough days, my rough days come, I'm not immune. I'm, I'm human. Just like all of us. I have good days. I have bad days. I'm very, very blessed to say that I've had more good days than bad days. Mm. And one thing I really appreciate about you, as I look through your Facebook, you have the spirit of gratitude. You're always mm-hmm. thanking your amazing team, and you know that that's really an amazing posture for us to look to look for. Yeah, to be to have that gratitude even in the middle of chaos. Oh, absolutely, a hundred percent. That you know, working at a hospital, we are a team. No one person is doing this alone, and it takes the entire team to make something successful to help a patient out. Um, 
you know, I'm so thankful for the people that I have in my life. I'm so thankful for, you know, the other social workers across the profession that are are navigating these complexities. I'm so appreciative of the people that show up at the grocery stores day in and day out and show up at the gas stations and the pharmacies. You know, I can't imagine what it must feel like for them, but, you know, me as Allison, I'm so appreciative because that means that I get to go and get food, that I get to, you know, make dinner for myself tonight. Um, and so it's, I, I, I really just have to stress that we're, we're all in this together. We really need to just support one another right now. We really need to take care of one another, take care of those that might have a difficult time taking care of themselves. We need to remember our vulnerable populations right now. We need to remember our seniors. We need to remember our individuals um, with developmental or intellectual disabilities living in group homes right now. Mm -hmm. Those individuals are also struggling. Um, Their daily lives and routines have been completely changed. Um, So I, I think that having this shared experience has the potential of really bringing us all together if we're able to tap into it and harvest it the right way. Thank you. I think you've given us an amazing um, window into how COVID-19 is affecting and how, you know, you guys are working and helping the public, which is amazing. Thank you for your interest in this topic. You know, yeah. I really, I really appreciate you reaching out. Thank you so much for, for being curious about how it's affecting us. I am because with hospice, uh, the social workers and chaplains, we are home. So in that sense, uh, it's almost over three weeks, we are not allowed to visit patients. So it's only the nurse who is in the yeah. field. So we don't know much, you know. Um, and in the process like that, we don't know. It's trying to find ways to help the nursing staff and all that and mm-hmm. and the family. So it's a, it's a crazy experience. Very much so. Absolutely. Yeah, so it has affected our identity. Uh, one guy, uh, we we we've been having weekly a daily Zoom uh, support group, and someone mm-hmm. someone termed it ambiguous loss. Are you familiar with that term? Ambiguous loss. I, I'm yes. vaguely familiar with that, but I, I I can't really put my finger on it. Oh yeah, so that is what many of us are experiencing because all of a sudden you're told not to go to work. and you're home so you're suffering from this loss that is beyond your control effect you know because and um many people are struggling to reinvent themselves to find a new identity with telehealth telechaplains Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel authentic (laughs) right oh yeah i I very much agree yes (laughs) (laughs) so we end this together thank you Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. That was Alison Nichols, a licensed clinical social worker at Northwestern Medicine. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. Thank you.